This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hi everyone, I'm Jake Clark, and this is The Law School Show's 200th episode. The purpose of an anniversary, as I'd like to see it, is to appreciate how far you've come from where you've gotten to. About 50 episodes ago, we did this with our producers, past and present. For our bicentennial, we've invited seven U Ottawa Law graduates from a variety of disciplines to speak about their experiences in and around the practice and study of the law. Our guests range from a seasoned practitioner to an articling student to somebody who is no longer practicing the law, at least directly. From clerkships to graduate studies to startups, we wanted to capture the opportunities and the alternatives available to those who choose to study and work in our profession. Now, two years of distanced education has done a number on a lot of aspects of our experience, from learning to networking to our general capacity for optimism. When I recorded these interviews, I found that themes of mobility and community stood out quite significantly for very obvious reasons, and three months of recording and editing made me think a great deal about how I and we incorporate these things professionally and personally. Confinement, confusion, and loneliness have hit most of us pretty hard during the COVID-19 pandemic, and these things are difficult and often painful. However, I would say that most of us, if not all of us, are here because we're at least a little bit good at dealing with things that are difficult and complex. So, with that in mind, I'd like to present to you seven ways seven people have managed these things. Let the bicentennial extravaganza begin. Kenya Jade Pinto is an Indo-Kenyan-Canadian documentary photographer, filmmaker, and lawyer. She is a 2017 graduate of the University of Ottawa's Common Law Program and currently working on a project with National Geographic uh, on a subject that we shall not disclose at present for fear of spoilers, among other things. Kenya, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for inviting me. And should I say Kenya or Kenya Jade? Kenya Jade or KJ is great. All right. Sounds good. So this is part of our interview for the 200th episode. And we're going to ask you three, four questions about how you learned the law and uh, one or two questions about what you did with it. Should we just start? Let's do it. Fabulous. First question is, if it's not too much to ask, can you describe your law school experience in one sentence? Law school was challenging, intense, and some days fun. I think that's accurate. <laughs> Some days fun, I think, could be the, the subtitle of the of many of our activities. <laughs> yeah. What's uh, one thing you learned in law school, academic or otherwise, that you've really developed or really put your thought towards up to the present? Well, I, I think I realized pretty quickly in law school that I, I wanted to be sort of, well, I wanted to foster myself as a fully formed human being with lots of different parts of me. Um, and I, I saw that law school was a place that really, obviously, you know, that's why you're there to become a lawyer, but it really harped on that, that particular part of, of your identity. Um, so I made, a, I made a call pretty quick in my law school 
journey to continue doing work as a documentary photographer and and to think of ways that I could kind of marry these two parts of me, this sort of visual storyteller part and and then the part that was like very analytical and 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 wanted to really start to understand what systems of inequity and oppression um, were scaffolded by, legally speaking. So yeah, law school was was really important and formative for me. And it, it also helped me to, to really think about uh, the ways in which I wanted to branch out further. Just kind of springing off of that, what thing did you least expect to learn or do with that? What did I least expect? I mean, I don't think that I could have necessarily known the ways in which the spaces in which I was going to be using my my law degree, but I'll say, you know, this year has been incredible. I worked on a, a few different projects supporting other folks. And one of the ways in which I was surprised and excited at my capacity to contribute to a project was on a documentary about a wrongful conviction. I pr- was a part of Sheehy's criminal law class. And as much as I thought, you know, the Socratic method at that time, and Sheehy's a very intense prop, was, was hard in that in those days. It was extremely, extremely helpful in helping me understand some of the systemic biases that this particular person in the story that we were following faced. I couldn't have guessed that I would be working on a documentary as a legal researcher, providing support to a director to understand the legal underpinnings of a complicated wrongful conviction. Couldn't have guessed that. But I'm really glad that I had that educational foundation to go from. Do you find that the analytical process that you go through or went through as a student of the law is also a value as a filmmaker? I know that filmmaking is also a very dynamic discipline. It can be very stressful and can be very litigious depending on the scenario. Yeah, you know, I I have loved the kind of the frameworking that sort of like comes from having studied the law, you know, you learned a framework and then all of a sudden everything requires a framework for some reason. And that's good. And I, I, I do do that actually, but I find that I have to sort of learn to let go a little bit more um, than I normally feel comfortable doing. And that has really served me well. The sort of the documentary space specifically doesn't really lend itself to a whole lot of analysis per se. Sometimes you're just following a story to try to understand where it goes. Certainly, if you're trying to understand a larger, complex issue, I think an analytical brain is helpful, but maybe this is not helpful for your listeners, but you don't need law school <laughs> to, to have one of those. Um, but it, it has helped. It has helped. Frameworking and, and thinking through things in, in that type of way has been helpful. Making art with an analytical brain may not necessarily lend itself to it, but what about the reverse? Can you, given your own experiences in the law, do you think you could practice law with an artistic brain? Oh, I think lawyers would be better for it, in fact. The the thing about working in creative spaces is that I've learned so much about creative collaboration that I didn't learn in law school, and maybe that's what would be what's missing. I know that it's kind of hard to replicate that, you know, even in like a group project kind of setting. But in the creative space, people really own their spaces. And then when things come together, they really come together. And I saw this the most when I worked on the set of Scarborough with filmmakers Shasha Nakai and Rich Williamson and screenwriter and author Catherine Hernandez. They are an incredible dream team who just put like the story is incredible. And then putting the, the script to the screen, um, that process 
just required everybody to be owners of their own domain and then be able to to adjust and collaborate and not take up too much space in this way and seed space in that way. And I think that that dance is something that I, I never saw really in law school. What was the thing that might, might have taken the longest to learn in your legal experience? Or what's something that still continues to puzzle you? Oh, puzzle. Everything puzzles me. I think that's the beauty of staying curious. But the thing that I'm constantly trying to be better at is listening, leaving space, not trying to force things and just letting things happen. And then maybe more practically, uh, I would say writing, like writing, no matter where you are or what you're doing is, is one of the most important skills I think you can have. And I loved being a part of the Legal Writing Academy when I was at UOttawa, for example. I think it really helped me hone my ability to write a grant pitch or to clarify what I'm trying to articulate. So that would be a class. If I were to pitch a class to anyone, that would be the one. I'm actually in a legal writing class right now. So there we have it. That point first writing indeed. Yes, yes. The last question I have uh, relates a little bit to writing in that it does relate to, I suppose, punctuation, but also relates to the concept of space and inhabiting various kinds of spaces. On your LinkedIn bio, which is very impressive, you're describing your worldview as hyphenated, and you've said that you're operating between currently three cities, three very different cities, Toronto, Athens, and Nairobi. And I'm wondering if you would have any advice for doing this, how to operate as an artist, as a lawyer, just as a human being between these many different spaces. Yeah, well, I mean, right now, working between these different physical spaces is just a necessity of the work and the projects that I'm, I'm working on. Nairobi and, and Kenya, the, the coast actually is is home for me. And so when I go there, it's really like a going home and then... Canada or Calgary is was my second home before I moved provinces over to Ontario. Um, and Athens is where I'm, I'm focused on a lot of the work, trying to understand the impact of technology on people on the move, supporting the Refugee Law Lab or in support of the Refugee Law Lab. I grew up in Kenya and then moved to Calgary as a teen and then moved again to Ottawa for law school and then have been back and forth between Nairobi and Athens for work now. And that's felt very normal to me, I think, because of the way that I sort of grew up inhabiting multiple spaces by by necessity. The other part of it is that, you know, I'm cognizant that I hold space as a lawyer, but then also as, you know, a filmmaker, I'm biracial, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm used to sort of chameleoning in so many different ways. And that... It's hard to give advice about that just because it's so inherent to who I am. It's just like breathing to me, this this idea of being a, a person in different places and spaces and, and, and holding space in those, yeah, in that arena. But, you know, what I would say is that for folks who are looking to expand their horizons and maybe broaden the scope of the reach of their work, it's really a matter of Uh, to me, staying curious and being open and being comfortable with some discomfort. You know, I think a lot of folks I talk to really want to know how I got into this work. How did I apply my law school degree this way? How did I make a living? And, you know, I'm very much like working those things out. There were, I have had definite points in my life where it has felt like 
a crossroads and I had to make a tough decision. And in those points, I had really amazing mentors and friends and colleagues and family members who I consulted, but really took the time to know firstly what I wanted to do with my life and where I felt like my skills were best placed and then follow that with a a clear and cogent plan. I think that's what law school didn't teach me. And I think that that's what law students would be. It would be good, I think, to have those moments of clarity. And I'll say one last thing, which is, you know, like I, I loved U Ottawa for the community that I had there too. I had really amazing friends who supported and, you know, I, I knew I wasn't doing the things that they were doing, but I, I love the things they're doing too. I think they're like these amazing people making their mark in the world in different ways. And so I think it's easy to feel like the like quote unquote black sheep when you're doing something very different, but finding the community where you can and when you can um, is really key. One last very short topical question about that. The ch- what are the changes wrought by the pandemic by that, do you think? What sort, what did that reveal anything? Did that challenge anything? Did that strengthen anything? Yeah, I mean, the pandemic really showed us who we are as community, in some ways bad, in some ways good. It certainly narrowed the scope of the work that I could do during the pandemic, and it allowed me to focus deeply on what I wanted to work on. But then it also, like, it it illuminated who my people are, you know, the people, the person you want to tell about something really great, or this was a hard day, or this was, this is what made my day hard. Yeah, it also, I think, made us realize that at the end of the day, all we have is each other. And so insofar as that's our, (laughs) that's our purpose, I think, I think, you know, we, I think it it has illuminated illuminated the question of what do we owe to each other? And I think it's, I think, yeah, I think we do owe community to each other. We do owe a little bit more than maybe we think. And we'll have to explore that indeed sometime in the future, I think. Now, uh, I know that you can't speak too much about your future project, but we may or may not revisit that at some point. At any rate, best of luck with it. Kenya Jade Pinto, it's been wonderful. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Aditya Rao is a 2018 UOttawa Law graduate in the JDMA program. He has worked for Amnesty International and is currently working for QP in Fredericton, where they are in the process of a very noteworthy action. I don't know if you're at liberty to speak on that. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a, uh, a historic moment here in New Brunswick. The last time we saw this level of labor mobilization in this province was 1992, uh, when there was a general strike. And uh, what we're seeing now is 20,000 public sector workers uh, organized uh, out on the out on the picket lines, demanding fair wages, and are saying that enough is enough after having been forced to work through a pandemic with some of the lowest wages in the country uh, in a jurisdiction where minimum wage is now the lowest uh, uh, in amongst all the provinces, where the, where the premier thought raising the, raising the minimum wage by a nickel during the pandemic was uh, uh, was the right thing to do and, and really insulted minimum wage workers and New Brunswickers with that uh, in a jurisdiction where we see some of the highest rates of child poverty uh, in the country, uh, as a matter of fact, despite the fact that we have two of the country's richest families three of the countries, which is families, one, you know, infamous one, of course, the Irvings, who, who have been robbing this province blind for, for, uh, for years uh, of, of needed tax revenue. 
leaving New Brunswickers to debate which emergency room to close down in which rural community. That is certainly quite a situation to find oneself in. And I do want to ask you about what brought you both to labor side law and what brought you to the Maritimes. But first, I'd like to ask you about your law school experience and, you know, your work with Amnesty International, what kind of uh, road has brought you there. And uh, I guess in the first, I'm going to ask, how would you describe uh, your experience in finding the law and in going about your legal education? You know, I I think uh, law school is probably one of the most humbling experiences one can have. It's uh, you, you are immersed in a group of incredible people who all are driven to do uh, interesting work and the intellectual conversations, the debates are, are always fascinating. I think the most interesting thing about law school for me, the thing that I enjoyed the most about it, though, Jake, was that uh, when I got to law school, I met folks who were dedicated uh, and committed to building a more socially just world. And they saw law school as a way to gain the tools they needed to do that work, and and those and, and finding those people uh, was what kept me motivated throughout throughout that agonizing three years of, of, of law school. Finding those people, uh, organizing with them. One of the things we did together was was the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers student chapter. These folks that I that I got to know, uh, and uh, we organized something called LobbyCon, where. Uh, it was, uh, it was all law students who organized this, this conference. We came up with the idea, and the idea was to uh, challenge a little bit this constant push towards corporate law at law school, constant push towards big law at law school. I mean, it's all designed to sort of funnel people into, 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 into big law, right? And lots of folks don't you know, end, up, end up doing it because that's really the only options that's presented to, to you at law school. Um, and alternative careers and, and, and careers in social justice are not as, as, uh, as, as presented or as familiar. Uh, and, and our goal was to have folks uh, participate in this conference specifically about refugee law learn advocacy skills, learn some learn some uh, refugee law issues, and then go to Parliament Hill and lobby for better refugee law policy. And and so we had law students meeting with members of Parliament on Parliament Hill, advocating for, for, for justice for, for refugees and migrants, and, and doing that with the guidance and presence of, of uh, experienced refugee lawyers. And, and some of them ended up articling for some of those lawyers afterwards. And, and that was the goal of the whole conference, was to, was to create that opportunity for, for law students to see an alternative path that isn't just corporate law. And there were so many other groups that did stuff like that. There was the Access to Justice Coalition, there's a practicing lawyer in Ottawa named Yavar Hamid uh, is, you know, very much at the forefront of organizing around access to justice in law, ran for venture, actually, uh, in the last venture election uh, against the stop sop, so to speak, coalition of, of uh, lawyers who got elected, you know, uh, on what can only be described as a platform of inequity uh, and injustice. And uh, it, it was remarkable to find folks who really wanted to organize together and 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 work together to to build a community that we can all we can all be proud of. I, I'm very interested in uh, this sort of summary of your time in law school as developing a tool because it seems like you've been able to put that tool to a very concerted and very um, uh, clear result along what you've described as this alternative path, which I think kind of goes into two themes of this series. And I, I'd kind of like to ask you a bit to maybe to continue along this road a bit because you know as, as we know the 
roads currently lead to QP and Fredericton. So you've been, you developed these tools in law school. You then proceed to work for Amnesty International. And as you've mentioned, sort of this alternative path, not only in terms of career practice, but in terms of location, sort of leads very much away from Bay Street, very much away from big law in Ottawa or otherwise. And I'm kind of wondering uh, what it was like. Well, you know, I, I was I was very lucky that I um, got my articles with uh, Amnesty International after law school. It was a, a remarkable gift. Uh, I I learned so much uh, from my time there. It was just the one year, and I knew I wasn't being hired back. In fact, that was one of the hiring questions. You know, we're not going to hire you back. Are you okay with that? And uh, uh, it was it was an incredible uh, year uh, doing international human rights law, but more importantly, doing human, international human rights law in a way that that really thought about how it applied in Canada. And, you know, I was, I got to work on, on some really interesting Supreme Court cases. One case uh, where we were an intervener in a case called Nevson Resources, which was about a mining company that had a, an operation in Eritrea uh, where some of the workers from that mine who were working in conditions of, of essentially forced labor came to Canada and 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 launched a, a lawsuit against the, the parent company based in BC. Uh, and it, the case is all about whether or not they should be able to make that lawsuit. And we were able to we were able to put in some some submissions around the international law obligations uh uh, on 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 Canada to ensure the right to an effective remedy, and in the end, the the Nevson decision uh, that came down from the Supreme Court uh, of Canada, I think in two thousand and nineteen, uh, early two thousand and nineteen, really changed the landscape for the ability of of victims of corporate human rights abuses to be able to bring uh, actions in Canada, and we're going to see. You know, we're going to see its effects still as we as we move forward in the way that that particular decision has changed the law. But there were there was also another case called China, which was a an immigration detention case, and it was the it, the question in that case was whether an immigration detainee has the right to bring a habeas corpus case in a in a in a provincial superior court uh, as opposed to going only to the federal court for judicial review of of immigration detention uh, review hearings that take place periodically and we were successful in in arguing that administrative detention is just as serious a deprivation of liberty as criminal detention uh, and we should any any deprivation of liberty you know in any context when the when the state chooses to deprive somebody of their liberty that person should have access to the writ of habeas corpus and and it was incredible to be a part of that that precedent setting decision by articling with amnesty and and same was true for the the third supreme court decision which was an indigenous uh, rights case where uh, the question was whether the nations that uh, the case was called the and and the and the the question was about whether the nations that whose lands uh, are currently occupied by Labrador uh, and, and Quebec, whether they need to bring a separate action in Quebec and in Labrador on the same facts uh, to challenge the effects of, uh, of resource extraction operations on their lands, uh, or whether they can just bring the case in one court and, and have that one court uh, hear the claim, but it was the it was the Attorney General of Newfoundland Labrador that was trying to argue that uh, that Quebec Quebec courts had no jurisdiction over the lands in Labrador, uh, and so the nations would should be forced to start a completely new proceeding on the exact same facts uh, and duplicate everything in a new jurisdiction that is entirely colonial in nature. And we, you know it was an amazing to be part of that. Being an amnesty uh, in, during that time was was very formative. But following amnesty, um, my plan was to start a refugee law practice, and 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 it's it's funny how our our lives in in law can can be so 
predicated on the political realities of our time because I, I thought I had a whole plan set up to, to work with legal aid files. And it was at the time that I was about to announce that my, my practice that Doug Ford announced 100% cuts to legal aid for provincial legal aid for refugee law, which reduced hours uh, or, or um, reduced payments for refugee law legal aid as a result. And, uh, and for a new lawyer who was would need to spend a lot of time trying to trying to get good at these files, it would mean not being able to make very much money at all uh, to pay off extremely high law school debts. And so it, it was really difficult to be in a position where you I'm no businessman. I have wasn't really looking to start some sort of multi-million dollar law firm, and so I did, I just wasn't sure how to make that viable. And and uh, fortunately, through having already been involved with the union, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, as a research assistant at the University of Ottawa, where I was uh, unionized by QB two six two six, and I had been involved in the local as a as an elected executive member, I heard about an opportunity at QB and and took it really just to to sort of tide me over for a bit. But I knew I've always enjoyed. Uh, community organizing and and, and uh, have been part of the labor movement before. And, and so uh, this felt like a natural next step, uh, at least in the interim. And, and now it feels like a, a career change, of course, in, in many ways. And so now I'm privileged to be to be living and working on the on the stolen lands of the Wallace the Peskutomokadi, and uh, the Mi'kmaq peoples, uh, and uh, here in what is now known as Fredericton, and um, uh, and the work that we get to do as in the, in the labor movement here is is inspiring every day. I, uh, I do uh, want to ask, as we sort of uh, wrap up our segment here, as sort of maybe the last bit of this chapter, how you found COVID impacted this or how it's impacted your practice or your uh, view on the law? Well, you know, the impact of COVID has been uh, enormous on uh, on the people that, that I work with. You know, our, the frontline workers that QP represents in New Brunswick, and I work in both New Brunswick and PEI in the Marriott well, what for QP's purposes is known as the Maritimes region. And, and I work specifically on the human rights of, of our members. And uh, the impact of the pandemic on frontline workers that we represent has been massive. The uh, number of people who have risked their lives to protect the lives of, of their communities, the, the number of members uh, of, of our union who work in various jobs across the province, delivering services and, and, and trying so hard to keep our communities running and operational, uh, despite the risk that, that it involves uh, on their own health and well-being. You know, that level of sacrifice it was to, to see that every single day over the last year and a half that I've been working for, for QP here in, in New Brunswick has been has been nothing short of incredible. And so when I when I think of, of what COVID has, uh, how COVID has impacted the work that I'm doing, I can't help but think of the sacrifices that our members make. But I also note that we, uh, the, the folks that we work with who are, who are often, who are, who are working, you know, the the workers that we that we work with, a, a lot of a lot of these folks don't have access to the vaccine. You know, they're living in rural they're living in rural communities. They're being told that they need to get vaccinated, and we all need to get vaccinated. And the and the government just, you know, governments are not taking the steps to make sure that vaccines are accessible. And so we're, we're you know we're talking about vaccine hesitancy as a problem, but we have to be talking about vaccine access. Uh, you know, it's it, it, uh, so many people who who are unvaccinated aren't unvaccinated because they 
they're afraid of vaccines. They just there's just no public transit to get them from their house to the vaccine clinic, which is far away from them. And and in a place like New Brunswick, that's predominantly rural, where we famously, uh, you know, are, have no public transit, where our, our premier famously refused to take federal money that was specifically geared towards public transit, you know, uh, and would have had to pay, spend no money of his of, of his own of our province's own to strengthen public transit. You know, we're, we're living in a place where, you know, these frontline workers are being forced uh, really to be in a position of precarity when we could all truly be living in, in health and security. And, and so so when, when I think about the impact that COVID's having on my practice, it's it's um, I, I, I can't help but think of the folks that I work with who uh, are struggling every day. And, and now they've been, been forced to the brink, pushed out onto the streets, uh, asking for a fair wage and are being told that they're greedy. One last question related uh, very much to this sense of place, like the particular, obviously, the particular requirements of New Brunswick play in to this, as you've mentioned. I'm wondering if you would have any advice for somebody who is perhaps a Ottawa law student or a law student in another major area like Toronto, Vancouver, who is considering practicing uh, in a place, a different province or a different setting. Would you have any advice for that, for that kind of change of place or that kind of change of perspective? You know, we we're fortunate to live uh, at a time where the law societies finally came around to to signing agreements so that you can transfer your license uh, a little bit easier. So I think you know, folks who have been thinking of of maybe moving to a different province, maybe moving to a different region, moving to I, I never thought I'd be living in Fredericton. I can tell you that. And uh, you know, I'm from I'm from Alberta. Uh, I I moved uh, I moved to Alberta from India. I moved from Alberta to Ontario, and I did not think I'd be living in Fredericton next. And it's been the, one of the most incredible career decisions I've made. I've, I have learned so much. I have met some incredible, incredible people. There's, there's such interesting legal work to do. And, and in some ways, underrepresented communities uh, are places where you can make the most difference. And so, you know, we know that there is a, a, a real crisis of, of access to justice. And we know part of the reason that there is a crisis of access to justice is because big law eats up all of the talent and it's only people who can afford to pay their big bills get to have any kind of legal representation. So now, especially that we are switching a little bit more into into a, uh, virtual worlds where it's easier than it used to be to file electronically and, and, and do hearings electronically and so on. There's more of a reason to, to really consider uh, moving to a d- different place and not, not thinking that the answer is always on Bay Street. Thank you very much, Addy. That's wonderful. I really appreciate that. really appreciate your perspective. And definitely best of luck with, with QP and the city of Fredericton. Uh, it was wonderful to hear from you. Well, thanks very much for having me on, Jake. Uh, this is a great idea to 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 do this anniversary episode and and think of ways in which you know student law students can can hear from folks who have tried to do some other things with uh, with their degrees. And and uh, I hope uh, more and more law students see uh, social justice and economic justice as the norm rather than the alternative career path uh, coming out of law school. If you will, it, it is no dream, right? That's right. Helen Berry came to the University of Ottawa in 1997 with a master's degree in social work. She took her JD in 2000 and has worked with the Public Service Alliance of Canada since 2003. She has been practicing law there for about half a decade. Helen, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? (laughs) Not too bad. I can't really complain on this uh, fine, crisp day. (laughs) It is. Now, I, I want to start this with the, the same question I usually uh, ask for these interviews, which is if you would summarize your law school experience with any certain kind of descriptor or adjective, kind of what would it be? Well, I think 
uh, I was older when I went to law school. I think I'm I'm glad about that. I had a I was a single mom with um, a teenage son when I started at law school, and I think that was made it a better experience than for some of the younger people, particularly the younger women in law school at that time. So. It was a good experience. It was grueling. Um, I had not planned on being a lawyer. It wasn't what I wanted to be for all my life since I was a child or anything. So I think that kind of took some of the pressure off me um, when I saw that kind of pressure playing out with my, you know, uh, with other students there, younger students, but even even people who are older that had always wanted to be lawyers. So I think that, yeah, so it was a good experience. I met some wonderful people, some friends I still have today. Certainly, I felt, felt the faculty was really good at University of Ottawa at that time. Um, it was a pretty progressive place at that time. Uh, I don't know if that's changed. I've talked to recent grads, you know, that I work with now from U Ottawa. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think the world generally has gotten a little bit less progressive. <laughs> so, so that might be, rec- you know, that might be present in the current state of, of law at University of Ottawa or at, um, in the common law program. What made you want to uh, come to the law uh, from, in that case, social work? Well, I was working uh, primarily in um, poverty law. Uh, I was a single mom on social assistance way back when. And after my master's of social work, um, I worked at the Social Planning Council of Ottawa Carleton, which was a sort of a think tank kind of thing for um, welfare rights and and, uh, anti-poverty. And I worked with Martha Jackman, who is a professor. I I understand she's still a professor at U Ottawa Law School. And I worked with her on, uh, it it was social conditions. Uh, which there was a lot of talk about trying to get it into the constitution protection or, you know, with the UN on social condition, which kind of encompassed poverty law, housing, homelessness, those kinds of things. So um, my organization and, and, and she were working together. And at one point she just asked me, you know, why I wasn't in law school. And <laughs> I kind of said, well, you know, it's not something I've ever thought about. And I said, and I have no money. So <laughs> it was, you know, going to be a little bit difficult. And I'd already been through two degrees, um, still as a single mom. So, you know, working jobs and going to school and doing all those things. But it kind of put a bee in my bonnet, I suppose, for a really old fashioned term. So I went and, and I looked into it. Um, I wrote the LSATs. I did terribly, just so everybody knows. <laughs> it was grueling. I did not do that well. But I did apply as a mature student. And I remember a lot of my essay, because you have to write an essay as a mature student to, to get in, even though I had a graduate degree and, and an undergrad degree. My essay was about my family. And in 1997, I was living with my partner and my son, or well, before then, um, my female partner. And uh, I, I was the only out lesbian in my school year. But at that time, uh, there was a lot of discussion in the press about and in the, you know, in, in the uh, in politics about same sex marriage. And there was a lot of vitriol and, and all kinds of horrible things being said about people raising kids with their spouse. I mean, my son I had on my own. Uh, so I was a single parent for a long time. And then, you know, I came out and, and was with my partner at the time. And, you know, they, there was so much about that, you know, and, and it just 
you know, I felt targeted. I felt targeted and, and how it was affecting my family, all this stuff about saying, you know, you can't raise, you know, good kids in, in same-sex families and it's going to ruin marriage and all those kinds of things. So I wrote a lot about how that made me feel and how I felt the law really had to change in those areas, which was, you know, certainly human rights at that point was, that was my focus a lot. So you're practicing human rights law now. You obviously were very involved with that at this point. And you've mentioned that in some ways the world seems to have become less progressive. I was wondering, uh, to go back to the example of being in the bonnet, in what ways does it still continue to buzz, if any? <laughs> um well, I think, you know, I, I feel good about the work I do. I could never, I, I did article at a law firm for six months and I, and I articled at the CIRB and I never thought really that I would go an article, but I, I had the opportunities and I went and did that. I'm very happy that I did now, but I didn't necessarily, well, I actually knew um, that I had no desire to work in, in a law firm, even a progressive labor law firm. I, I didn't want to work in a law firm. I just, I'm just not designed that way, particularly because I do focus on human rights law and the people who need human rights lawyers are already struggling. And, you know, I don't want to have to, you know, charge them for every six minutes of my time. <laughs> so I've kind of landed in the best place for, for that kind of thing. Um, of course, I, I only represent our union members, but we have a lot of them, the Public Service Alliance. So I do a lot of disability cases. I do a lot of race cases, sexual orientation, sexual harassment, those kinds of things. So a lot of Canadian Human Rights Commission cases and things like that. And, and I sort of feel like it's where I'm supposed to be. If I can shift gears a tiny bit to talk about what it was like to go through law school with a, a young, well, at least you know, a teenage son, I'm just kind of wondering what you could say to that for those maybe uh, other students, because I do know some other students who do have children. I'm wondering um, what you might say of that experience, if you have perhaps any advice, do you have any um, yes, uh, experiences from that that you'd like to share? Yeah, uh, like I said, I was I was a little older than than you know the average person there, but there were there were a few of us who were older and had kids, and and there was actually um sort of a mature student group of us uh, that kind of supported each other, and I also found I I, I think in my second year. It's, getting on there now but I think in my second year I did some mentoring for younger students that were they're struggling a bit and things like that and with my social work background I think that that kind of worked well I also joined uh, outlaw which was a, a group at the time um, and I apparently still is which is great as I said earlier I was the only out lesbian in my year I'm sure there were other people but you know I was I was in a relationship. I was openly out. So, you know, those kind of things helped. I met some wonderful people. Uh, usually they were older because younger people didn't understand, you know, no, I, I'm not staying after class and going for a drink because, you know, I've got a kid at home, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it was, it, but that's how it had been all through my university life because my son was three when I started university. So I think there were positives of it, but it was very stressful. I was also working um, a lot because I still had to pay for for my son and, and for my, you know, self. My third year, I actually worked on the Ontario or the um, Canadian Human Rights Act review. This was a task force review kind of thing with Justice uh, Gerard uh, Laferre, former justice at that time. So I, I had the good fortune of working that that review. So, you know, I've still got the, the, the booklet that has a lot of dust on it, but, <laughs> and in part because I was working on social condition and that was a really good experience. But I, I tell you, my third year was really tough because I was working a lot of hours. Mm -hmm. uh, we were doing some traveling around for presentations for that 
review. So, you know, it was a bit difficult. I have some family support here in Ottawa. So, it, you know, it made my decision about where to go to law school very easy. <laughs> so I had no choice. <laughs> it was Ottawa or not. So, um, you know, it was tough, but, uh, you know, hindsight, it, it was worth it. And, you know, my son was really supportive. My family was supportive. Um, and that really helped a lot. Can't underestimate the importance of family. That's why I came to Ottawa in significant part as well. Right. I have one question I'd say perhaps to finish it because now, and the, because the thing hanging over these interviews this entire episode is of course uh, the pandemic. And I'm wondering uh, if that has uh, shown itself in any sense, if that's revealed anything, if that's changed anything, if it's a signal of anything to you in your work in life, uh, however you see it. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say I've been incredibly fortunate. My spouse is almost retired, but I was able to work from home. My my um, employer was very quick to move everybody home because I used to travel a lot with my my work. I've always been able to work from wherever, right? You know, so and and that was one of the really great things, or has been one of the really great things about being at Public Service Alliance, is that I've traveled all over Canada. I've been to every province, every territory. I've talked to people doing work all over the place, and because we have the federal public servants, they are all over all over Canada doing really interesting work, and a lot of them kept their jobs as well. So that that helped. So, you know, we just kind of slid into, you know, working from home and it's worked out really well for me. And and I feel very fortunate to have been able to do that. So I just, and I don't have young kids. I don't have, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like a lot of my colleagues and friends who had to deal with, you know, school and or no school for their kids and, and things like that. So it wasn't terrible. Certainly we've had different kinds of cases. I think disability cases are going to even after the pandemic are going to go up, not just from the pandemic, but just kind of the, the mental health issues that have come up with that. And I do tend to te deal with a lot of mental health kind of cases, which are the tougher ones for sometimes. And, and I have to say, I rely on my social work background quite a bit in my work, sometimes more than the law, <laughs> you know, and I think that I'll, I'll have to draw on those skills again when we're, when we're through this. I can imagine, I think you'd agree that if, if it helps the person at hand, then that's the job well done, right? Absolutely. I, w I wish you a fine time doing that for as long <laughs> as you wish to. <laughs> Thank you. Lovely to talk to you there, Helen, and best to you, your son, your partner. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. It was nice to meet you. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Samantha Peters is the Director of Legal Initiatives and Public Interest at Black Femme Legal, a project funded by the Law Foundation of Ontario to study and practice in areas of intersectional law. She is a 2016 graduate of the University of Ottawa's Common Law Program and a scholar and mentor regarding these same issues that she studies and works in today. Samantha, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Can't complain. If we get to it right off the bat, I want to ask you, how would you sort of describe your time in law school in brief? Yeah, so I think that my law school experience was interesting. I am from Toronto, so it was a move actually to come to Ottawa. And first year had its challenges, but I really enjoyed my first year, specifically the small group kind of crim environment and it was in person. So that was really awesome. But I think that in general, law school is what you make of it. And so while there were challenges, I think that when I was able to figure out 
what area of law I was interested in, what kind of spaces I wanted to be in, what I wanted to learn. Uh, my experience just only started to improve and get better. That's, I will tell you this, we I've learned over the past little while, do not to underrate in-person classes. Right. <laughs> and that sense of that sense of community, which is uh, quite a theme uh, through these interviews, and definitely something I'd like to focus on as we go forth. And I kind of want to ask you, just sort of uh, pursuant to that, how did you um, sort of come to your area of study through uh, through law school? Were you already interested in these issues? Did law school refine them in that way, or did you sort of develop these interests while you were in uh, the JD program? I totally developed these interests while I was in the JD program. Entering law school, I was like, I want to do criminal law. And I was totally obsessed with that. I think I did like the criminal law mentorship program, uh, shadowed a lot of criminal defense lawyers, and that's exactly what I wanted to do. And as much as I learned and appreciated that mentorship from criminal defense lawyers, I realized that that is not the kind of lifestyle that I want. However, it didn't mean that I didn't have an interest in criminal law. And so what that meant was that I started to think about, okay, so what areas of law intersect with crim? And I would say pretty much all areas of law intersect with criminal law. So I was just like, okay, so what do I do? And throughout law school, I would get a lot of messages from friends that would talk about their experiences at work. And it would just seem to be this common theme. And I was like, what is this? Is this even an area of law? And then folks were talking about like labor and employment. And I was like, uh, what is this? And I think through starting learning about workers' rights, I was like, wow, I didn't realize I was probably doing workers' rights kind of mobilizing for a long time. I just didn't actually know this was an established area of law. And then I started taking courses in labor and employment during law school. And that kind of cemented my interest in workers' rights. Kind of uh, moving forward uh, from that a little bit, how did that sort of develop into the work you're doing right now? Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't really start taking labor and employment law courses until my final year of law school when I had secured articles in my 2L summer. And so in taking that, I was like, wow, okay, <laughs> this is pretty awesome. And then I ended up articling at CUPE National in Ottawa. And then I kind of just continued to stay around kind of workers' rights circles. And that kind of led to how I'm practicing law today. And so kind of rewind to last year when we were seeing a lot of folks talking about anti-Black racism a lot more in public discourse. And I was also noticing that on Twitter, Black women and femmes in particular were highlighting their experiences of massage noir and anti-Black racism and other forms of discrimination in the workplace. And I was like, wow, okay, I think I want to do something to support these folks, right? And it was folks ranging from precarious and gig work to people that were working in the film industry that we're talking about these issues, right? And so what I decided at that time was to create a virtual toolkit for centering Black 2S LGBTQI plus folks to get the legal support and non-legal support to help them with issues that they may be experiencing in the workplace. And that's being mindful of not everyone defines justice within the law. And some people, justice for them is simply healing. And so the resources that are offered through Black Femme Legal are also able to support people in those other ways of healing and justice. 
I know a lot of your work uh, deals with the intersection of law and policy, among other intersections. And I would like to ask you, based on that, what you think of the uh, role of lawyers in this historically and contemporaneously. I We were talking earlier, I looked up a list of prime ministers by degree, which is available. And there are a sum total of three of them who have no legal, who had no legal education. For those curious, Joe Clark, Stephen Harper, and Justin Trudeau, you know, respectively, a political scientist, an economist, and a drama teacher. And uh, otherwise, all Almost everyone had a graduate degree or an apprenticeship or a practicing degree in the law. Ethan Baker was famously a criminal defense attorney. I have also read articles saying that, especially on the provincial scale, there have been less lawyers, which is to say only about 25% present in that. I'm wondering if you could speak to perhaps the role that, that many lawyers find in activism and the way that many of them have historically have and continue to have in statecraft. So just to be clear, is your question whether or not I think that it's helpful to have a legal background in order to do activism and, and advocacy work? Yeah, like sort of how you how you see this role uh, developing. Yeah, so I think what I've noticed a lot more, at least in spaces that I am in, is that there is this shift to movement lawyering, right? And so what this means is that lawyers are tuned to what is happening in the community. And I think that's really important because the law and community, the law and society, all of those things don't exist in silos, right? They intersect, right? And so that's part of the reason why talking about law and anti-Black racism, law and gender justice, law and the environment, law and ableism. It's important to talk about these things together because they do in fact intersect. So I think that it's really awesome to see the lawyers that are seeing this as important, as a matter of urgency, as a professional responsibility and integrating that into their practice. And so what I hope to see you know, in the future is that we continue to see movement lawyering as important, but also as a professional responsibility in the practice of law. Do you sense that especially with the number of law students growing that there is perhaps the uh, growing creation of an activist class of movement lawyers across the spectrum? Sorry, can you repeat the question? I was wondering what you would make of an analysis that perhaps with the number of law students that are increasing and with the uh, increasing awareness of alternative legal practice, if there is perhaps the growth in certain aspects of movement lawyering of what we could call an activist class. Yeah, I think so for sure. And I, I also think that it's always been that way. So I don't think that because there are so many lawyers and law students, people are pushed into activism lawyering or movement lawyering or community lawyering. But I think that as the legal culture slowly shifts, there is space to actually engage in that, right? And so I do think that because of the fierce legal advocates that exist in law school that are really trying to shift legal culture, it, it has normalized the existence of community lawyering and community lawyers today. Sort of to loop back to the law school experience and coming to find your own practice in a sort of a community lawyering, is there any kind of um, advice you would have for somebody who is maybe not aware of what role they should take in this? If somebody's not quite certain what they can do for their community, what might be a good way to find that perspective? Yeah. So I think that like in terms of like, what can I do for my community? It's always just asking, right? But it's also like I scroll through Twitter, you know, I read newspapers, I walk in my community and I can see the gaps or things that are missing, right? And there are just so many, there's just a wide range of ways in which we can offer support. And in my opinion, there is no big or too small way to do it, right? And 
the ways in which we can support depends on our access, depends on our ability and all of those things, right? And so I think that community lawyering can manifest in very different ways. And it's not just like opening up your purse, but I do think that folks that are able to literally, you know, donate to community organizations are already doing the work. That's how they can do it. But it's also, you know, writing letters to elected officials. It's also writing in community papers or in legal newspapers. It's retweeting communities that are trying to amplify the work that they're doing, right? So those are the ways in which people can engage in supporting their community, even if they're not aware of everything that is currently going on in their communities. As a sort of a follow through to ground us in our time here, what do you think COVID or the situation of the general pandemic, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but what do you think that has either revealed or challenged or otherwise sort of presented when we talk about something like community lawyering, when we talk about public engagement in the justice system or policy at large? Yeah. So one of the things that I think that COVID has illuminated is that there is an issue with access to justice and it's not as accessible, right? And so what COVID revealed has revealed is that we can make accessing justice more accessible, right? So by virtue of, for instance, having virtual hearings, for instance, being able to work remotely. And so those are a lot of things that weren't really offered before or were just not done at all or contemplated that are now happening, right? And so I think that that has been really helpful. And I hope that these things continue past this pandemic when we think about the recovery. Here's hoping. Right? Cross my fingers. This is actually just recorded a little after because I thought it was a little uh, unfair of me not to ask you about your, we mentioned uh, law degrees and a lot of the law degrees of people who've run our country, including, for example, the person who created our national anthem and flag are LLMs, which is also a degree you are taking part in at Queen's University. I'm wondering if, wonder, like, um, if we could just talk about that for a bit. How are you finding that experience? Yeah, for sure. So I'm enjoying it. Right now, I'm at Queen's University, and I'm a candidate in their LLM program specializing in political and legal thought. And I hope to be looking at Bill C-3, which has now become law, which is with respect to judicial education for superior court judges on sexual assault law and social context. And so my experience has been interesting. It's been a bit of a hybrid. So there are some classes that are virtual, which is great, but some are in person. And because it has been challenging for me to find a combination in Kingston, my partner drives me to and from campus when I have class. So that's about three hours each way to get to Kingston from Toronto. But thus far, my experience in general has been really great. My professors are awesome. The guest speakers have been incredible. And I feel like I am learning so much in such a short period of time because we're not even done semester one. If somebody's interested in LLM, if somebody's interested in an LLM, Mm -hmm. And perhaps in law and policy, what would you say would be uh, the indicator? When should somebody go for an LLM in your experience to sort of study these things and understand them a little more deeply? Yeah, so I think that you should, I mean, LLM has a lot of commitment and it's a lot of work. So I think that only you can determine when you're ready, but you should be ready or you should be applying for an LLM program, I think, when you know exactly what you want to research. You know, if you went into law school already having ideas 
okay, perhaps going right after might be what works for you. But um, as mentioned earlier, I graduated in 2016 and now it's five years later when I thought, okay, I have experience now under my belt. I know exactly what I want to research and write about and I feel more confident in my professional capabilities than I would have had I applied to an LLM program and began right after law school. Yeah, I think that uh, there is certainly a profound trend in thoughts we had about things in 2016, developing some new, uh, let's just say, angles and or wrinkles with the passage of the last half decade. Yes, absolutely. With that in mind, uh, Samantha, it was wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. I really appreciated meeting you, Jake. Cheers. Likewise. Wishing you the very best. Bye. Wali Ahmad is a UOttawa dual graduate, civil law in 2018, common law in 2019, and is currently working in-house for Mistplay, an app that helps you get rewards on your online games. Now, if that sounds a bit like an ad pitch, uh, do let me know. I guess it's just the voice. Wally, what'd you think of that? That was pretty great. <laughs> yeah, that was wonderful. Yeah, we are an app uh, dedicated to uh, allowing people to gain loyalty points in order to be cashed out for uh, gift cards while playing your video games. So it's a great uh, opportunity for people, especially during COVID. But uh, thank you so much for having me here today. I really do appreciate it. Now, I'm going to ask you a little bit about working uh, with Misplay, working in-house, working in an app. But first, I'd like to ask you what I've been asking uh, everyone else here, which is, how would you describe law school uh, in brief? How would you sum up your experience? I guess in brief, it would be new, challenging, but full of opportunity. Uh, you're in a new environment, learning about things at a level of detail that you could not have been prepared for. You're learning all the basics of the law for the first time under very strict deadlines for exams and assignments. The amount of reading is intense and time-consuming, but at the same time, it's fascinating and makes you want to learn more. And despite these challenges, there's so much opportunity to grow, both personally and professionally. You have the opportunity to try and build a network of current and future legal professionals, be it lawyers or other students that will eventually be lawyers. You can do this, for example, by joining or creating law associations. I mean, I did this by founding Uwadawa's Intellectual Property Law Association. You also have the opportunity to do practical work through an internship experience. Uh, But more than anything, you have the opportunity to learn about which areas of law interest you the most. And this will help you shape the type of lawyer you wish to be. Now, you did both uh, civil and common law, as I just said. How did that shape the kind of lawyer uh, you came to be? So the civil law program was a program that was entirely in French. And although I was from Montreal, my French wasn't incredible. So, you know, being thrown into an all French environment where all your courses are in French and your essays and your your presentations are being done in that language, I think that definitely helped me become a bilingual lawyer. And having done both civil law and common law, I'm now educated in both legal traditions or two of the three legal traditions, not including Indigenous law, that are available to us in Canada. So it allowed me to do a bit of comparison um, of the laws, not only within the civil law and common law jurisdictions in Canada, but throughout the world as well. And intellectual property, as we all know, is one, a a big recruiter uh, in Ottawa, and I I really can't speak to elsewhere, but also obviously quite a complicated field. And I'm kind of wondering how that, how that you sort of came to intellectual property and how you came to start an organization of students with that interest. So I would say there's two things that contributed to that interest. The first being my opportunity to, right out of my first year of civil law during that summer, I did 
intern at a law firm, which exposed me to various intellectual property issues, primarily around trademarks. And prior to that, prior to joining law school, I was also at a mobile advertising agency with a heavy focus on, you know, branding. So combining those interests in branding and intellectual property, I developed a really good understanding and interest for trademark law in particular. And then kind of just out of my own interests, I am a really big Marvel fan and I do follow kind of the legal battles, you know, between Sony and Marvel over certain characters like Spider-Man and just kind of getting to know those copyright issues uh, and licensing issues was was absolutely fascinating to me and kind of pushed me to want to, you know, be a founder, whether it's at a smaller level in law school or whether it's something that I carry with me into my profession as well. Yeah, I mean, this might get us started on a tangent here, but how do you feel about sort of the adaptational history of Fantastic Four in terms of keeping uh, copyright on that one? Well, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I've been following very closely what's happening with, uh, or what's happened over the last two years with all of these characters. And I think what's come of this is that if the characters are in the right hands with the right company, that they'll be developed in a way that will honor those characters while keeping in mind all the branding that comes with it and all, you know, the copyrights associated with it, uh, all any sort of style that's associated with, with it as well, I think. Without getting on a tangent, we've seen what's been done with the Spider-Man franchise under Sony specifically versus what's been done with Marvel now. And we can definitely see, you know, who's almost deserving of the copyright. But uh, of course, you know, deciding who's deserving of that copyright is not exactly a legal foundation for who actually obtains it legally. So now in, in terms of your discipline and coming obviously from advertising, you've got quite a personal history with it. I'm wondering if there is an issue that continues to sort of puzzle or engage you from your time in advertising or your time in law. Another good question. I think when it comes to advertising, one thing that that, or rather that I like to see in contracts is who's owning the IP, right? Or like, what are certain ways that we're allowed to use IP, um, you know, directly related to my work, for example, we do have a lot of clients that will wish to advertise their games on our app. Um, we do have discussions as to, you know, how can we use this kind of IP? And I think what really puzzles me is how far a, a certain client is willing to license out details of that IP in order to allow us to help them help their campaigns rather perform as well as they can. So moving over to your time at uh, Mistplay, I was wondering if you could describe what it's like for us to work uh, not only specifically in the tech sector, but specifically at an app company. Mm -hmm. is, is it, would it be correct to call Mistplay a startup? Yeah, it's a startup. It is a growing company. We have experienced a lot of growth, especially during COVID. So um, just to kind of give you the brief of what the, the app is about, we are a mobile application, Misplay, uh, available on Android. And essentially, you know, the longer that you play games on your phone or the longer or the more in-app purchases you make, you'll gain a certain amount of loyalty points, which can later be cashed out. For a variety of gift cards such as an uber gift card or an amazon gift card that's kind of the primary business model as to you know how it is working in-house it can be very hectic you know i am the sole legal counsel i do have the benefit of having an amazing mentor in the cfo but i do act as the only legal representative at the company you are met with the demands and needs of so many different teams within the company. So I often find myself dealing with requests from the product, design, data, engineering, marketing, sales teams, as well as the Asia division and our new growing game development and publishing division as well. So there is no lack of areas of law. Human resources as well, you know, we touch upon employment and immigration law there as well, which is so completely detached from 
the tech issues that I'm so used to dealing with at the company. So uh, I would say, you know, you get a lot of great exposure uh, in-house at a tech company. It is a very fast-paced company with so many brilliant minds and so many brilliant ideas. And each idea needs to be vetted before it actually gets implemented. So the workload is definitely, you know, something that increases over time and with an app that definitely benefits from people staying home during COVID season, it only gets crazier and crazier. And I'm given to understand this is very interesting to me because apropos of COVID, you've started working with this company during COVID. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. What was that like sort of acclimatizing yourself to the workplace? What was, uh, I, I, I know you've worked in a lot before, but how was that as a shift? So yeah, working uh, as legal counsel during COVID is interesting. Like I said, you know, we are that anomaly where our company experienced an accelerated growth during COVID. Um, So when I joined, that's actually the peak growth period that we had experienced. Actually, officially as of today, not anymore. But uh, at that point it was, and our product and our app, you know, because it was developing so fast, there was a bit of a need for me to be in the office to actually have in-person discussions and try to create more of a collaborative spirit between myself and the other teams. You know, I did work, we were allowed to work from home, but uh, initially the offices were open. So I did make the effort to go, obviously while taking the necessary precautionary measures, of course, because of that spirit of collaboration that was necessary. It's such a small shop. Of course, when the when the office shut down, we worked from home uh, and we did figure out ways to be collaborative using certain tools such as uh, Notion, for example. So we did find ways of doing both uh, working from home and the office. And I think now we're at a point where offices have reopened uh, and we're moving more towards a hybrid setting. Sort of my last question for you. You've started as an in-house fairly early in your career relative to many people. I think the usual, the received wisdom about being in-house is you work in a firm for about a decade or so, and then they will place you with a company client. What advice can you give to people who are maybe interested in doing in-house work or interested in working maybe more more one-to-one or more closely in certain companies or certain sectors? Right out the gate, rather. Great question. So it would be twofold, right? I would say... Try it out um, while you're in law school by doing internships or student proposed internships as we have at U Ottawa or in the civil law program, we call it les enseignements uh, pratiques. So yeah, do try to gain experience in various settings. You know, I did do uh, an internship in a law firm at Denton's. I also worked in the government and then tried in-house and figured out what works best for me. Uh, mainly because this is something that you can't experience in law school, right? So that would be the first kind of part of it. Also, you know, kind of staying on top of legal developments, especially in the tech field. You know, when we're looking at the field of fintech, the laws are still being developed. And it is really important to stay informed of developments in the law outside of what you're just learning in law school. Secondly, I would say, you know, if you want to go in-house, be open-minded about the type of law that you'd like to practice. In-house law, like I said, encompasses so many different domains of law that you may or may not have learned in law school. You know, for for me, it's immigration law, employment, uh, intellectual property, privacy, regulatory, commercial, a bit of everything. And if you do want to go into in-house, especially within a startup, be prepared to be open-minded to the possibility that you'll have your hands on so many different tasks and types of law. A engaging promise, certainly, but one I think many people will find compelling. All right, well, it was wonderful to talk to you. Great to talk to you as well. Thank you for having me today. 
Jolene Hansel graduated uh, with her JD from the University of Ottawa in 2018 and went on to work for the Supreme Court of Canada, one of the most, probably the most, uh, certainly the most coveted clerkship in the country, and currently uh, works at both Abigail Goldstein LLP and at uh, the university as well as a professor. Abigail Goldstein Partners, I should say. And in addition to that, she has had some really fantastic experiences, including one that I hope we'll go into as a ballet instructor for quite a while. Jolene, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Can't complain. Well, eh, we're recording this around exam season, so I can a little bit, but all in all, not too much. How about yourself? Yeah, that's understandable. My students are a little bit stressed out. I teach 1Ls, so it's their first batch of exams. What do you teach the 1Ls? Public and constitutional law. Ah, very good. I was a public law, I, I suppose, the stream, the specialty myself. So much appreciated. Awesome. And if we can start by asking about your own experience in law school, can I ask you in brief, how would you describe that? What what kind of impression did it leave on you? So I think law school was one of the hardest and one of the best things that I've done. It was definitely the place where I found my fit. And, and I just say that to mean everything that I understood and the way that I was thinking and I all of a sudden was engaging with a whole bunch of people who were interested in the same kinds of things and passionate about the same kinds of things as me and it just it felt right right from the start but law school definitely wasn't easy and the three years were hard but you only get three years of law school and then they kick you out and give you a license to practice law and that's actually kind of petrifying and so I just wanted to use those three years to learn as much as I could and then articled and then punted the actual practice of law down the road two more times with my clerkship because I just wanted to make sure that I knew as much as I could before I actually started giving legal advice to real people and impacting real people's lives. I can absolutely understand that. That's certainly a difference that I think a lot of people definitely try to to find some hold on during their time in law school, right? To try and find some way to render their experience tangible. In the past few years, there's been an additional roadblock to that, but I think there are certainly still some ways to do it. If I can ask you about that a bit, like what was the fit sort of you were that you were drawn to specifically? Where did that area come in? So for me, it wasn't one particular area of law that I was interested in in law school. I really just loved working through a legal problem and just understanding it from all sides and knowing that there's not always and often not one clear answer. Like sometimes you come up against law and policy in these interesting and complicated ways and you're trying to understand how the two pieces can fit together and how you can make law out of you know people who have very different views on topics. Absolutely and I've got to imagine that came in very handy when you went to work for the SEC. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to clerk. Clerking for me I mean I mooted a lot in law school and I loved it and clerking for me was like mooting every day with many active files. You're just reading the arguments and trying to understand the party's positions and trying to figure out what is the most correct answer to a given fact pattern. So can you tell us a bit more about your time at the uh, at the SEC? Sort of how did you set yourself on that track and uh, what was the experience like? Yeah, so I mean, to be perfectly honest, I didn't come to law school thinking that I would ever be able to clerk, that I would be a smart enough or strong enough student, that I would be in that cohort of people. And I just kind of like put my head down and did my thing and got some really great experiences along the way. And in third year, I think it was Professor Kirkup who really started encouraging me to apply when those applications came. And so I did put in my application to clerk. 
And the first year I found out that I was clerking at the Court of Appeal for Ontario. And so I went there first. And then I applied again um, to the Supreme Court. And so from the Ontario Court of Appeal, I went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And if uh, we can sort of get a little granular with that, what, what was there a, a specific difference you would note or a specific commonality to clerking between two courts? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of similarities in terms of some of the basic work you do, right? Reviewing the factums, reviewing the law and having a, a kind of opinion on the outcome of the case and talking about it with your judges. The Court of Appeal has a lot higher case volume. They hear over 2,000 cases a year. And so you're dealing with many, many cases, sometimes multiple cases on a day. And they do a lot of what's called kind of error correction. So judge just made like a very clear error in law and you flip it back. About half the cases are those kind. And the other half are the jurisprudential cases that are likely to be appealed to the Supreme Court or seek leave to appeal to the Supreme Court or at the very least will set the law for the province for the foreseeable future. Um, so they've got a little bit of a mix of that. What you see at the Court of Appeal, too, that's a little bit different is they're trying to operationalize what the Supreme Court has set out at the law. The Supreme Court sets the law at a very high fundamental level and the Court of Appeals are trying to work out the nuances of it as these cases are being litigated in real time. Uh, so that's very interesting. The Supreme Court, you're getting like experience working on oftentimes like some of the biggest legal questions that we have um, that come up to the court. And, you know, one of the beautiful and also very scary things about the Supreme Court is they can make the law. Like they can decide that the law is not right in places. And we've seen those historically, the cases you study in law school, right? Like Ewan Chuck is a good one on that really kind of changed the landscape for sexual assault law. And so, you know, you've got nine judges who have incredible power to influence the law. It's a scary, it's actually a scary thing to be a clerk and to have an opinion to give it to a judge who has kind of that kind of power to make a decision. You really want to make sure that you're right um, and giving the best decision that you can. So they're just kind of two very different experiences with the different caseloads, but I enjoyed them both very much. I I don't want to say did that feeling uh, follow you at the time, but was that feeling sort of a prevalent kind of thing while you were doing this? That, what feeling, sorry? I I guess the pressure of the last word. I mean, absolutely. And it does even when you're talking to a judge at the Court of Appeal, right? If they're going to take your opinion and, you know, judges, you know, they listen to the people around them and they listen to the clerks and they're going to make the decision, right, at the end of the day. But the fact that you have the ability to talk to a judge and give them your opinion on something is like an incredible experience, but it's also scary. Like you want to make sure that you're right and you're not giving the judge bad legal advice. Um, as they're deciding the outcome of a case that's going to affect, you know, not just the law, but also the litigants that are standing before the court, right? Your decision is going to have a very real impact on some people's lives. And now you're both practicing and teaching currently. How did that sort of experience with that kind of pressure talking to the judges sort of, uh, sort of form the way you go about this or did it? Yeah, so I think I've always been kind of a very overprepared type. And one of the things I think that I learned in law school that I carry with me in practice is there's no substitute for hard work. Like at the end of the day, sometimes you have to just sit down and trug through the thousand pages of transcripts. Like you have to start at the beginning and read to the end. There's no way to do that fast. There are some things that you just can't do fast. You know, that's the same thing when I was clerking at the court. The only way you know you've read every case is to read every case and understand every case. And I do that in practice, too, to make sure that I've left no stone unturned. Um, And even when I'm teaching, to make sure I have a full understanding of the arguments or, you know, I'm really explaining it in a way that gives the fundamental basics to my students so that they can pick that up. And I think 
as it really played out for me in teaching, what was important for me in my class was not just teaching my students, you know, the nuts and bolts of public constitutional law, but actually giving them some hard skills that they could use in their other classes to learn the law. Because at the end of the day, you don't come out of law school as an expert in really any subject area. You should come out of law school with the tools to become an expert in any subject area that lands on your desk. And so you need to know how to do the legal research. You need to know how to find a statute. You need to know when those statutes have come into force. You need to know how to interpret those documents. So we spent a lot of time learning the hard skills too. I definitely get that feeling. I've definitely been told that. And I do actually, I would actually like to ask you something about another, certainly another area of profound skill, although not explicitly related to the law. I'd kind of like to know as an educator, as somebody who's taught people both ballet and the law, if there's any similar, distinct similarities uh, there regarding, of course, the discipline pressure and so forth. Yeah. So, I mean, I think both require a high degree of discipline, both require incredible focus and both require like very precise work and between the between the two and so you know when you're when I'm teaching dance it's very much like learning how to control and move different parts of your body um, in very intricate ways to make a very particular picture to get a very specific movement and when you're doing law it's having that like in-depth clarity and understanding of the law not only in terms of understanding but also in terms of you know the precision with which you're communicating And you have that communication aspect of both, right? You're communicating yourself and expressing yourself through dance. But in law, that communication piece is so important in writing or orally. It's it's the art form of law that sometimes gets lost. Like just knowing the law is not enough. How you communicate it and package it can be some of the most important tools that you have. Well, another thing I I, uh, I have uh, seen here is that you did a good bit of work for the Legal Writing Academy. So I've got to imagine that certainly translated to its own variety of precision there. And that's certainly a wonderful thing to think about uh, precision, because certainly I have to imagine if you go before a court, you have to have a very precise knowledge of what you're presenting or else uh, you, you can run aground very quickly. I, I was going to ask um, maybe a little more generally if there's a specific thing that uh, continues to um, incite uh, like a curiosity or continues to challenge you to this day. But I'd, I'd actually kind of like to ask a bit about that sense of precision. I'm just, do you think it's a sense you cultivate or do you ever really know? Or is it always very circumstantial? I think you develop like a little bit of a sense And some people are a little more apt towards it than others in terms of being precise, but also just conceptualizing your case and the arguments that you're making into kind of the clearest of forms. There's, you know, many different people could write, you know, the grounds of appeal or X, Y, Z in different ways. And you could get very, very different outcomes in terms of kind of the product that's produced. And in the same, in terms of you know, oral advocacy, you could give three people the same factum and tell them to argue it and you would get three very, very different outcomes. And some of that comes with, you know, your level of precision in the words that you're choosing and how you're communicating and your level of precision in understanding the exact law and the cases and exactly what's at issue for your client at the end of the day, right? Like where are the actual breaking points in your case? What points do you need to win? Where can you make concessions? And so I think all of those are important, but you have to take all of that into a big picture um, and really conceptualize your argument as a whole. And that can be a very challenging thing to do. Both for students, but also for uh, young lawyers, I'd have to ask, is there a specific area where this is often most challenging or that takes the longest time to develop 
the precision required to do good work. I'm not sure that it's a particular area. I think it's just something that you have to practice. And there are lots of opportunities to practice it, right? Like every memo you're assigned in law school, every paper that you're writing, every opportunity you have to, you know, participate in moots or law clinic or whatever it is, can give you the opportunity to develop those skills. And it's just what you do with those opportunities and how you and how you work them will determine whether or not you develop those skills. And uh, I, I suppose that the question, the elephant in the room, uh, or whatever pachyderm it is, is how in your estimation does, I, I guess, COVID affect the form of this discipline, either the actual requirements of precision or the opportunity to practice it? So I think COVID, COVID's been a challenge in a, for the profession generally, particularly for young people entering the profession. And it's been a challenge, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, the legal profession is such a community and you learn so much from each other. And when you're not bumping into people in the actual courts every day or at conferences or wherever you're going, you it's easy to lose that kind of connection and that sense of community. And some of the communities that I've formed along the way are some of the tightest knit communities that I go to with all my stupid questions every day. The law clerks at the Court of Appeal are the ones who, you know, I'll ask the stupid question to first. And some of my friends from law school. And so it's really important to make and maintain those communities. And that's become so much harder in the context of COVID when we're not all in person and you're trying to establish those relationships virtually. That being said, I do think the majority of lawyers are very open to establishing those relationships virtually. And I found that very much when I was interviewing and looking for jobs in the legal profession post-clerkship. You know, you would just send an email to someone and say, hey, I'm kind of interested in what you're doing. I'm trying to get a sense of what I want to do next. Do you want to chat? And nine times out of 10, I got a response that was like, absolutely. I'm happy to chat with you about what I'm doing and, you know, give you a sense of what you might be interested in. And so the profession's very good like that. It's been made harder with COVID, but I think that there are also benefits to it that someone can commit to 20 minutes on Zoom a little bit easier than they can commit to like 20 minutes of coffee, right? So I was about to say there's been a number of wonderful people who've been able to put aside 20 minutes to do this interview series. So I, I definitely see your point here and I very much appreciate it. It's very helpful to have that sense of community even under the strange circumstances. And I think, or what I hope becomes of the legal profession post-COVID, like there was, and a lot of law firms are changing their tune a little bit now, or had been changing their tune already, but there was this idea of if you're not in the law firm, at the law firm until 8, 10 o'clock at night, as an articling student, like you should be the last one there and FaceTime is important but because people were under the impression that lawyers couldn't possibly work from anywhere else but the law firm. And that's really challenging for people, particularly people like myself that have a young family. I had um, my daughter uh, right at the end of my article. And so not being able to have the flexibility to work from home or um, to do those things would have been really, really challenging. And I had a great, very supportive articling and my clerkships were very supportive as well. Um, and my firm that I work for now is fantastic. But one of the benefits of COVID that I hope sticks around is it forced everything to go virtual. So I can make daycare pickup and do bedtime with my kid and still finish whatever else I need to do. But I don't have to go back into the office to do it. Um, and I hope that that makes the profession more accessible for some people at the end of the day. We can only hope, right? Mm -hmm. We'll see. We'll see what's here to stay. I, I do have one last question just to close this out. Do you have a brief word for anybody suffering from the law student's chronic complaint, which is imposter syndrome? 
Oh, I mean, only to say that I suffer from it myself every day. And it's something that I think is incredibly challenging for us as lawyers. And and I think even what's challenging is even seeing yourself as a lawyer. Like, I'm not sure that I identify as a lawyer yet, even though I've been in practice for however long I've been in practice now. And I think that it's what makes me feel better, at least, is surrounding myself with people who can help be reminders that I know what I'm doing and that I'm working hard. And I, and to be perfectly honest, when I was articling, I had one or two copies of the letters of reference of people who wrote for my articling jobs with me. And when I was having a really shitty day, I would look at them and go, okay, I'm actually not so shitty. Like I do have some competencies. And it's just learning that like, you're going to mess up. And that's okay. Because most mistakes are fixable in law. We've got lots of checks and balances in the system. You miss an appearance in remand court, someone's going to adjourn it for you, or you can get back in later today and they'll rescind the warrant against your client. So most things are fixable, which is not something that they teach you in law school. It seems to be like if you miss that 5 p.m. deadline to get your memo in, the world is absolutely going to come crashing down. And I think if you're really suffering from imposter syndrome, look for a firm that you think is going to be supportive and provide you with the support that you need and the mentorship that you want. Um, And so pick your firms carefully because that can be hugely helpful when you feel like you're supported by the environment that you're in and safe to make mistakes. Couldn't agree more. You know, uh, I went to a meeting of actually Imposter Syndrome Anonymous, but I I left because I didn't feel like I belonged there. (laughs) Jolene Hansel, it's been wonderful to have you. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was great to chat with you. Stephanie Wright is a recent UOttawa graduate who is currently articling at DLA Piper in Vancouver. Now, if her name sounds familiar to you, uh, that is because you might have been looking at the law school show Masthead and recognized her as our former associate producer for communications. She's also TA'd at the law faculty and intern for EcoJustice. Coming to us live from Vancouver, Stephanie, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Jake? Not too bad. Come see, come saw. It is actually, as we record this, the second day of 2022. So, so far, high hopes, high hopes for this year. The lesson of these interviews is a certain degree of optimism is either necessary or warranted. I don't disagree with you. Now, if we can just jump right in here there, Stephanie, and this is question is obviously going to be recent. It's going to be the most recent for anybody uh, in these interviews. How would you describe law school uh, in brief? I would describe law school as a three-year-long marathon. I think you start with the training of the LSAT and the applications, and then once you get into it, you're on the go for three years straight. And, you know, at the end, you feel really good about it, and you look back and that you're really happy with what you accomplished and everything you've done. But while you're in it, it's sometimes hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you come out feeling really good and very grateful for the experience you had. After having run this marathon, what is the bar exam and articles? Um, Wind sprints? hurdles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's the beginning of the second marathon that is articling. But no, I think that there are challenges that come after law school, but you just take them as they come and and you get through them and and you end up being really grateful for them once they're all said and done. Now you are currently articling and you have conducted your entire articling experience during the COVID-19 pandemic in another city. And I'm wondering if you could sort of speak to any of the challenges or the unique experiences that may or may not have come from that situation. I think COVID in general has significantly altered 
our ability to build connections with one another. And I think in law school, that manifested itself in our ability to network with our colleagues, with our professors, to build relationships in the law school and legal community. And I think that that same challenge carries over and has carried over to my articling experience um, while articling during the pandemic. However, despite that challenge, there are things that have alleviated sort of the negative, like how that has panned out. And I think that being able to go that extra mile and putting yourself out there and making effort in in establishing connections with the people you're working with, with your fellow law school, with your articling colleagues, and people being genuinely interested in getting to know you even over an electronic platform alleviates the challenges that come with articling during COVID. And I, so I think that COVID has affected the social aspects and the neg- and the networking aspects of articling, but I'm just really grateful that other people are willing to go to the extra mile to connect with you and that, you know, the the law firm that I work at gives you the tools to connect with people even from your home. So I think that's that's it. It certainly does touch on a very recurrent theme in these interviews, which is, of course, the requirements and complications of community in our profession and, of course, in our time. And if I can ask maybe a little bit more of a granular question, what kind of areas interested you most about the law? And then how does that compare to the areas that you are uh, currently working in now? Well, I was interested in going to law school in the first place. I think this cliche answer of just having a really strong desire to learn. And I like to absorb information and I like learning different things about different areas of law. And what was interesting and drew me to coming to law school was the fact that you can apply the law to pretty much any facet in life, any topic. And that has carried over in my articling experience because I work at a firm that has such a broad area of expertise. You know, we practice in almost every area of the law except for criminal law. And I think being able to be exposed and have the opportunity to work in so many different areas of the law, from family to securities to professional regulation to forestry and mining and so many different areas of expertise and topics that my experience has been very fulfilling. And I've been able to meet people who are passionate about what they do and have become experts in those fields. And that's something that I aspire to be and and to become really passionate about. And so I'm very happy with my articles and how that thread of wanting to keep a very broad area of interest and learn about a lot of different things has, my articling experience has enabled me to do that. And I'm grateful for that. One thing we've also talked about in many of these interviews is the sense in which law school is a practical education equipping us with a very specific skill or a very a very specific set of skills. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I actually can't remember where that's from. Oh, that was from Taken. Right. Cool. I thought for a second, was that John Wick? Uh, it's like they're all starting to blend together inside for too long. But uh, equipping us with a very specific, well, actually very generally applicable set of skills, primarily those related to legal writing and research. Would you find these things are honed or given a specific uh, aspect in your experience? Or did they shift between what you were being asked to do in law school and what you're now being asked to do at DLA Piper? I think that being able to write well and to research well are the most important things that I have taken away from law school and that have been directly transferable to my articling experience. Because everything I do, every project I get is new to me. And so being able to very quickly 
find out like the understand the fundamentals of that area of the law and then build my knowledge very quickly in order to answer a very discreet legal question. This is especially pertinent in litigation and being able to quickly and competently provide an answer in writing to a lawyer who's going to rely on that research for their legal argument or to advise their client. I think that those skills of legal research and writing are are the most important thing that I have taken away from law school. However, I do think that there is a place for theory and the substantive law so that you know the basics and you understand, you know, the broad landscape of of some of the areas that you're touching on. However, you're always going to be asked questions that, you know, you never took in law school. You never took I never took securities in law school, but I'm I have done a little bit of securities work and it started with me asking myself the question, well, what is a security? <laughs> I think we're all trying to still answer that question, but the very basics you often need to teach yourself and that you need to begin through research and then communicate through writing. I mean, I took securities law and I still ask myself that question. Yeah, I think everybody does. Yeah. I ask myself and Professor Vasudev that question a great deal during the GameStop interview. <laughs> or did I? <laughs> yeah. Now, um, you have moved from Ontario to Vancouver. And previously, to come to law school, you moved from Newfoundland to Ontario. So another theme that we've had to this, and I suppose I'm just compounding these themes at this point, uh, is about mobility. So it's about the movement between places, between professions. And I'm wondering if you would have anything to say to, for example, another person who's considering articling in a province different from where they are being taught or have been taught the law. I think if you want to work and live in another province and you want to build your career and foster a community and set your life up in another province and you want to article somewhere there, go for it. Do it. I think that every region, every province, every territory will offer you a different experience and it offers an opportunity to build a community, um, make friends become colleagues, you know, build a network in a new place. And I think that what's most important for me when I'm when I think about my career moving forward is finding a team of people who motivate me and who make me feel passionate about what I'm I'm working on. Because no matter what, I think I'll, I'll be interested in any kind of work that I end up doing. But it's really for me about the team. And so I think that if you are willing to start sometimes from scratch to build a community and find colleagues both in your workplace and outside of the workplace, then don't be afraid to switch provinces. But you will be faced with that sort of extra hurdle of needing to move to a new place and sort of set up a life there. And so whether it be establishing the legal community, but you also need supports outside of the law. And so knowing that during a very busy articling year that you're going to be needing to have some sort of supports in place in order to fall back on or or help you through a very challenging and busy year that is articling. And so building that community in the workplace and in the legal community, but also outside of the legal community is fundamental if you are going to be moving to another province that you don't already have, you know, family or a lot of friends in. And so be prepared for a whirlwind, but I'm sure that everything will work out because, you know, it has for me and I'm, I'm really, I'm very grateful to have moved provinces. I think it's been really interesting and why not? Why not indeed? <laughs> I don't know. Why not? I think that, I think it's really interesting. Why not live and work in a new place and build a community of people who are like-mindedly interested in, and want to be a part of your career? I think that's fantastic. I think if there's anything the past couple of years have taught us, it's this not to underrate the capacity to change your scenery. Exactly. And 
on that note, I suppose we'll say, uh, why not? Why not? Why not indeed. That's been our Bicentennial, and if you'd like to check out our previous 200 or our coming however many, you can check out all of our episodes on our website or on various streaming platforms. Check out the Student Life series. If you'd like some on-the-ground perspective as, knock on wood, institutional strictures ease up a little bit. If you'd like to be on an episode yourself, feel free to send us an email, uh, send us a DM on Instagram, uh, hit us up on Twitter, or load up a carrier pigeon and send it towards U of O. I've been Jake Clark, and thanks for listening. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.